Join us for part two with Mr. Perrin Beatty, former cabinet minister for multiple portfolios, CBC chief executive officer, and currently the chief executive officer for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. We talk about leading people in very public roles, the personal toll it can take, and decisions that every leader needs to make. If, if, if we, can we pivot to a bit to the, to the, to the business world? You've also had 25 years plus working directly with businesses, whether it be in the manufacturing sector or more broadly with businesses across, across Canada and uh, representing their concerns or needs, the, the consolidation and creating communities of business leaders and encouraging those who are at local levels to, to build their communities. In your, in your view, and, and you know, you've met all sorts of folks, I, I, I imagine. Um, what, what, what demands, what, uh, what skills, what, um, what things does a, a leader need today in your view to build successful businesses, whether it be a two person shop or a 2000 person organization, or what are the things that somebody needs today in your view? based upon your years of experience and, and being able to make these, all these observations that you've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about? I guess the starting point is, uh, is vision. You have to have a clear sense of what it is, where it is that you want to go. And that certainly applies for anybody in, in politics, but it applies for, for business as well. You need not necessarily be an expert coming in. Um, you need to know what you know and what you don't know. Uh, and where to go to to get the advice that you need. It's often, if you're an entrepreneur, it's often a very lonely experience that you have. And um, and you may have had a brilliant idea to develop a new product or new service, but that doesn't mean you're, you're skilled in all of the aspects of management and how to grow your business and what's taking place in the marketplace and so on and what the second product is going to be. Um, so you, you need to, to look at how you build teams and, and how you draw the best out of people. Um, in my career, the, the first, when I first went into cabinet, um, I was 29. I was the youngest cabinet minister in Canadian history uh, at that time. Nine months later, it was Joe Clark's government. We were defeated. I was the youngest cabinet minister, former cabinet minister in Canadian history. <laughs> well, you had some nice bookends anyways. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> my uh, my brother-in-law had been working in Mr. Trudeau's office. Uh, uh, one of his jobs was to win my constituency. Um, so family dinners must have been interesting for you. <laughs> I do remember one Thanksgiving dinner that got a bit heated. <laughs> and I'll tell you about that off air. So. <laughs> but um, um, I went, went to him because he'd had experience working with cabinet ministers, working in Mr. Trudeau's office. And what he said to me was, as you're choosing your staff, as you're choosing people to work around you, your starting point should be that everybody, choose people who are smarter than you are. Put it that directly. He said, if you can do the job of any of the people that you have there and your staff working with you better than they can, you have the wrong person. Um, so very often um, leaders, are afraid of, of of being seen not to have all of the answers and of not being the smartest person in the room. 
what has served me well was that advice that I got very early. And I've watched it with, with other leaders as well. They don't feel that being surrounded by, by people who are more knowledgeable than they are or who are quicker than they are, who have skills that they don't have, they don't see that as a liability. They see that as a strength. And secure leaders, confident leaders, reach out to bring those uh, those people in. People who are insecure want to make sure that there's nobody who can show them up or who can who can say, "You're look, you're just dead wrong on this." It's, it's the same way, it, it, and it's interesting. Um, when when I left CBC, it was I was just about to turn fifty, and it was when I was moving then to the private sector, and uh, uh, I was very fortunate to work with a group of the company that did a, provided executive advice. One of the pieces of advice they gave was to create your own cabinet, your own board of directors of people who are very good friends, who are such good friends that you know that they have your interests entirely at heart and that you're so confident they're good friends that they're going to be comfortable saying to you when you're wrong, when you're doing your career planning. So the first thing I had, I'd been in, in, in public life all my, my life. I'd been a parliament, cabinet minister, president of CBC, and so on. Turning 50, it was the first time ever that, uh, that I had to ask myself, well, what do you want to do? You start counting down at that age. Uh, about how much time do I have? How do I want to use it? And up until that time, every, from the time that I made the first decision to run for parliament, through the time that I have CBC, the jobs had come to me in that sense. The first decision to run for parliament, but then prime ministers offer you the cabinet jobs. Prime Minister Kachan, a political opponent, asked me to become president of the CBC. Uh, it wasn't something I had sought out. This was the first time in my career since I had been 21 that I had to look at, at what to do. And the first inclination is, the hardest thing was taking things off the table. So it was, well, I could become an astronaut or um, go back to school, do law, and become chief justice of the Supreme Court or change my religion and become pope or, you know, a brilliant neurosurgeon. Or, you need to have somebody around you to say, um, we think we should be narrowing your scope somewhat to, um, to what makes sense. You, you have to be able to have people around you who are comfortable and whom you trust to be able to say, this is the most cockamamie idea I've, I've ever heard. You are out of your mind thinking about this. Totally unqualified to, to do that. You also, in business, need to have people around you who say, um, yeah, I, I hear the idea that you're looking at, but here's why I think it's a bad idea, or here's why I think it's a good idea, or here's another idea. Have you considered, have you considered this? Um, so surround yourself with the best possible people is, is whether in business or in, or in uh, public life, integrity. Um, people who are, who are dishonest get found out. They get found out in public life. They get found out in business as well. Uh, operate at all times with, with uh, integrity. Uh, humility. The, the very best leaders that I've known over the years uh, have had a sense of humility. They're aware of their own shortcomings. And, um, and, and they appreciate people who, who can offer something that, that they can't. So vision, integrity, quality of people you surround yourself with, having a plan. Um, and then the, the other thing, 
It's not just business, Colin, but it's life. The greatest gift that we can give to a young person is to give them the gift of always wanting to learn. But we tend to look at education as a canning process, that we flip the lid open in kindergarten, we pour knowledge in and then flip it closed when, when you attend your last class. Uh, that doesn't work. Um, you know, most of us will have many jobs over the course of our uh, over the course of our, our career, and the nature of our jobs can be constantly evolving. Um, I once asked when I was defense minister, I asked the chief of the defense staff, "What do you look for in a in a successful military officer?" He said, I, "I look for a wide range of interests. You can teach somebody gunnery, but what you need to have is somebody coming to you." with a broad interest, a broad understanding, and these people make the best military officers. That was quite, an, quite a lesson for me because we tend to think of, of, of uh, the military as being terribly disciplined. You're gonna to be told what to do. Orders far from it. Western military doctrine involves people being able to think for themselves and to assume leadership. And to do that, you have to have a breadth of vision. Uh, one of the reasons why you're seeing the failures of the uh, Russian army today in Ukraine is that is that much more narrow training that they, that they have that you're a cog in a machine as opposed to uh, to being able uh, to supply leadership. At, at the end of the day, we should be looking for everybody in our organizations to be leaders in their own way. Maybe in a you know maybe in a more narrow confined space, but for them to be able to to to, to lead and to aspire to, to lead. You've got Cavus's wheels turning. I, I know, I, as soon as you've talked about it, I know where Cavus gets excited. Go ahead, Cavus. We'll let you out of the box. Go ahead. Say something. Well, <laughs> first and foremost, uh, Colin and I are at that age where we're counting down to you, so we're counting down to you, so. <laughs> <laughs> remember that. But no, it, it um, reminded me growing up in the States and um, had an infatuation with the military. Uh, someone said to me, the reason why North American militaries are always going to have an advantage is we teach to lead, whereas other militaries teach to follow. Taking that same principle and going back to what you said previously about retention in the workforce, being able to help companies not only recruit, but retain talent. It's very hard for a lot of smaller companies to grow these days. And I, I may be wrong on this, but just observation, it's very hard to take a small business and grow it as fast as we were able to a few decades ago because talent's always leaving. In business, what are some of the tools that leaders can use in the, in the attempt at retention? Well, we, we mentioned empathy earlier, um, you know, particularly for young, for, for young people, they want to feel that there's more than a, than a paycheck involved here. They want to feel that my organization that I'm working for understands my needs, cares about me, is interested in my professional development as well. And that, that I'm part of something that, that is greater than simply punching a clock. Um, and getting a paycheck for it. So um, 
you create an environment where, where people feel privileged to be there and, and where they feel respected, not, not that they're treated as a cog in a, in a, in a machine. Um, I, I am very fortunate that they, uh, at the Canadian Chamber, we've grown enormously this, this past year. Um, I'm very fortunate to have a, a brilliant chief operating officer who's come out of the private sector, um, having successfully built businesses to uh, run the Canadian Chamber. So much that she can do here that is so much better than, than what I can do. But one of the areas where she's very focused is is on um, is on our employees and our staff. We've had to do a lot of hiring over the course of the past year. Very tough environment, particularly here in Ottawa, when you can see the Peace Tower here and the public services is our competitor for for jobs and our members, our corporate members, can write a paycheck that's considerably higher than the one we can. So why do people want to come? Uh, well, we hope it's because they feel a sense of mission, that they feel respected in what they're doing, that they feel that even if they don't spend their whole career with us, that the time they spent to us is value added to them, that, they, that they're able to go to somebody else with something um, something that makes them a stronger candidate than they would have been before they, they came here. Uh, they want an environment where, uh, where it's free of hostility or harassment, where... Um, where diversity is celebrated and, and seen as a strength rather than a rather than a challenge, and um, you know, my gosh, she does. She, she and the, the the team have just done done an incredible job with all of the churn and change that we had in being able to attract just outstanding people. And for me, sitting on top of the organization, where this is the work that others have done to, to bring in this very strong team. I just feel very privileged every day to be able to be part of that and to participate in it. But, but it comes down to, I think, the very first thing we were talking about, treat others with respect and with, with empathy and understand that, that um, you can make all the speeches you want, you can issue all the edicts that you want, uh, but unless people feel invested in, in what in the mission and in their job, you won't succeed. Let me give you one other example. I realize you're asking me about the private sector, uh, but let me give you one other public sector example uh, from my own experience. Um, when I became Minister of National Revenue, um, you won't remember because you're much. You both are much too young for this. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Someone's finally calling me young again. That's great. <laughs> in, uh, in opposition, uh, I was the um, when Brian Mulroney became uh, became our leader. He asked me to become uh, the shadow minister for the Department of National Revenue, and uh, we discovered that the Department of National Revenue had become totally dysfunctional, and that bas the basic taxpayer rights had been taken away from from people that that the quotas had been put on tax auditors, tax collectors, that they were essentially upending taxpayers and shaking loose change out of, out of their, their uh, pockets, that, that uh, the, the basic rights of taxpayers had been taken away. And the assumption of the government was essentially, you're a potential crook. Um, how are we going to deal with you? As opposed to, you're a law-abiding citizen who deserves to be supported until we see any evidence to the contrary, and, and our goal is to support you and to, to serve you. Um, 
we created something that I chaired called the PC Task Force in Revenue Canada, where we had professional advisors. We went across the country and every night we were in the lead on the national news as there was revelation after revelation as to uh, the loss of the, uh, the basic rights of our, of our citizens. Um, it, it was shocking. It was front page news every single day. And we then ultimately drew up a, uh, a report for the reforms that we wanted to make in, in Revenue Canada. Now, you can imagine the, the, the people for whom this was the least pleasant, and that was the, the rank and file members of the, of the Department of National Revenue, now CRA, um, because the tax man is never the most, you know, he usually doesn't win the Rotary Citizens, Good Citizens Award. Uh, uh, he's not the most, you know, not Mr. or Mrs. Popularity uh, in the community. Um, and as we were going across the country and revelations of, of abuses from the department were, were being made public, a lot of people were turning on their, their neighbors whom they knew who worked for the tax department, and they gave them a very hard time. And I remember the calls coming into my constituency office from people working at the local tax office in Kitchener-Waterloo. And I, I remember one of them saying to one of my staff, I sure hope. Mr. BD gets to be Minister of National Revenue one day so he can see how badly we've been treated as a result of, um, of uh, his going across the country and the revelations that there's been. So um, these people were put through the ringer by their next door neighbors and others. Um, I became Minister of National Revenue and, and inherited a department where if you had asked the employees there, who would you least like to have as your minister? Anybody in Canada? <laughs> this was the person we saw in the news every night who made our life miserable. I wanted to make, we had committed ourselves to making sweeping reforms to, to the system and to changing the attitude that the department had about taxpayers that the assumption would be that Canadians are basically honest. If you treat them with decency and respect, they'll respond in kind. Very different from uh, Canadians are all potential crooks and they should be, you know, we should be turning the screws. I knew that, that I would not be successful in implementing this if, if it was over the objections and the fears of people within the department. The only way we could be successful was to change the culture within the department itself and to, to have the active buy-in of our, of our employees, uh, where they felt that what we were doing was the right thing and that it was something they wanted to be part of. And so the first thing was they had a right to see me firsthand, in person, and to make a decision as to whether or not they wanted to follow me or not. Um, so I needed to get out of that office in Ottawa and go across the country and meet with my own staff and spend time with them and answer any questions they had. We created something um, that we created a schedule for me to go across the country. And in, in the morning, I would, would meet with tax practitioners, maybe for, brec for breakfast, talk to them about what we were trying to do. Um, Lunchtime, perhaps give a speech to the Chamber of Commerce about the reforms, meet with local media and so on. But we would also then 
uh, the bulk of the time we would spend at the local tax office meeting with the employees. Um, I would start first um, the day before I would have my staff call down to the, to the district office director and say, the minister wants to meet with a focus group of employees with no management present, no union present, where literally we will call it a lottery group where people interested in meeting with the minister under those circumstances, put their names in a hat, get thrown out. Um, and so we can have a, a candid conversation. So the, the first thing I do in going in would to meet with the, the district manager, then with the management team, then with the union. Then I would meet with the, uh, the so-called lottery group that we had. And then meeting with the lottery group, what I would say to them, and it was interesting, you'd get two reactions from the, uh, from the senior managers. It was either, sure, be glad to do that. That was from the good managers who were confident the ones who weren't confident would come up and say, oh, look, you've got to watch out. There are ringers here. From the <laughs> All you've got is the malcontents and troublemakers here. And so then you knew you had a management problem when, when you heard that. The, um, the, when, when I would meet with the, with the lottery group, I would say to them, um, look, um, I'm here because I want to hear from hear from you about how we can do the job better and what you need to, to do that. And I want to hear about your your experience. Um, if you've got a grievance of some sort, I don't want to hear it. Um, we met with the union, used those processes. Instead, I want to talk about how we're doing our job and, and how we can do it, do it better. And after an hour or so, I was hearing from these people, they said, now, you're sending us in to sit across from the from the most highly skilled tax practitioners in the country, and we lack the training, but we have to make it up as we go along. In many instances, they said, we don't even have professional business cards. We have to type our name in on the, the business card. As a result of, of, of this, you, you saw that people felt that they weren't treated with respect by their own employer, let alone by everybody else. Starting point had to be, um, to say to these folks, you are professionals. You're going to be treated as professionals. We doubled the training budget. And uh, we looked at, at ways of, of sending the message that, that you're not going to be the most popular citizen in the town, but you're going to be treated with respect and as a, as a professional. You know, I then went out and either we had a coffee party if the, if it was small enough, but uh, sorry, if it was small enough. We would go out and I would go from desk to desk to meet each of the employees, let them size me up and get a sense of who I am. And I knew that they would be talking to the people in the lottery group. They'd say, you know, who is this guy? What's he, you know, is he, is he as weird as we, as we thought he was and you know, some sort of a, some sort of a cook? Let them make their, their own judgment but meet with people directly. And um, in so many instances, and if it was a larger office, then we'd have a coffee party, have everybody there in one place. And I would just have a chance to speak to people, answer their questions, um, ask them about their kids or about what their career aspirations were and so on. Treat them with respect. Nine months later, when I left the department, we had implemented most of the recommendations that we made. And, um, the switchboard was, was swamped with calls from people saying, we just want Mr. Beatty to know that we're going to miss him. That was, was pretty, 
rewarding to, to know that because we it gave me confidence that we had made the change that we needed to make, which was cultural. It wasn't issuing instructions from a closed office. It was um, inspiring people to to want to serve the, the public, and and that was absolutely uh, absolutely key in my view. I am learning. So <laughs> I told you, Kevin, we learned a lot. This is this is this is wonderful. Um, we have we have a we have a question we always ask every every guest, but. Before we get we get to that, I'll let Cabus ask it this time. But but before we get it, can, if I can make a, a, a couple of comments and um, and Cabus, uh, the the circumstance that Perrin and I had an opportunity to to, to meet, um, uh, I, you know, I'm certainly grateful for, but it wasn't over the the, the most wonderful of, of circumstances. And um, a few years ago, I I had the the opportunity to be on the uh, Regina. Uh, Chamber of Commerce Board and um, uh, elected uh, elected chair, and it was at the time that our our CEO, who is uh, very much a friend, very passionate person in our community, um, was uh, was gravely ill, and um, it was a very challenging period because he he a loved his role, community loved him, um, but it was a it was at a point in his. Uh, his illness that he really could not, not go further. And uh, on top of that, we were in the midst of, of, the, of the COVID pandemic. And, and, um, and so our connections to one another were, were really restricted. And, uh, and so one of the people that uh, I reached out to uh, was Perrin and uh, didn't know him, but I, I got it, found his phone number. I don't remember how I found it, but I got it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, I think I, I I made a couple calls, and then there were a number of people that eventually got to Perrin because I knew Perrin was quite close to uh, to our mutual friend, and um, and not only did uh, um, Perrin in, in, engage in, in that, but uh, for several weeks and months, we've held conversations with me and and uh, had the opportunity to essentially be coached. For, um, on a couple of things, and so I'm I'm really really grateful uh, uh, for that, and um, and then to be invited back uh, at the at the beginning of the annual general meeting for the chamber, there is a, a collection of uh, chamber executives, and so they they have a, a conference just preceding the the AGM, and, and invited to come in and just say a few words on behalf of, of our friend that we did lose uh, earlier the. The, uh, the year, just uh, uh, an acknowledgement that uh, that his peers had, and uh, and that was a really emotional evening. <laughs> it, was, it was very emotional, and um, and you know after just saying a few words, just to honoring our friend, uh, and I had no business being there. I thought I'll just walk up back to the back to my hotel room and wait for the rest of the the session. And I was stopped by so many people who wanted to cry and hug and speak, and I never thought. It's just I never thought it was just unexpected for me to see so many people who, um, often in very, you know, very powerful roles in their communities, just break down and and, and cry and uh, and just you know just stand there and just <laughs> hug each other in the hallway and uh, and just they, they, while they just shared and so I just saw this 
real human side of, of, of leaders who, you know, in their own time are struggling as well, but had lost a, a, a dear friend. So, um, parent, thank you for, uh, thank you for that opportunity and, uh, to, to connect that way. Thank you for, for reaching out to me at that time. Um, you know, there, even at the darkest times, there's something often that's good that can come out of it. In this instance, it was both the opportunity to meet you and get to know you and to see the, you know, talk about empathy, the, you were his boss and you treated him with, with such incredible empathy and support throughout all of this. Um, it was remarkable and was inspirational to me. It was also inspirational to me to see this was a very public case of cancer that he had that people were well aware of. The, the courage that he showed throughout all of this and the continued dedication he had to the community and to putting back in through all of this. Um, you know, the tears and hugging that you're talking about that night wouldn't have taken place except for the fact that we were dealing with a very extraordinary human being who, had, who exemplified some of the best qualities of leadership. Um, and, you know, the, his chamber is not the largest organization in Canada, but it's an example that every size organization, every sector that we're in, leadership is absolutely critical. And uh, this was somebody who had really provided that throughout the course of his career and had built so many friendships and relationships as a result. Okay, so I'm going to kick it back to you. I don't want to start crying. <laughs> Other tragedies uh, do come some triumphs. So this is one of the triumphs. We are trying to uh, see through the course of this process of t chatting with uh, tremendous leaders like yourself is if we were to build the prototypical leader, and I think I have a couple of clues of where you're going to go with your word, what characteristic or quality would that leader have? I think you mentioned it with empathy. You know, it's understanding that one, one of the things gave us that was fascinating for me is I, I learned that it's, it's not the physical surroundings of the facilities that you have. It is the quality of leadership and how the team performs that makes the difference. Let me give you an example of that. Um, again, from my, from my uh, public career, I was solicitor general of Canada, uh, first solicitor general not to be a lawyer. And so it was with great apprehension that I took that on. One of the things, so you had the responsibility as Solicitor General for the RCMP, for CSIS, the security agency, for the parole board, for um, uh, secretariat, and for the prison system, uh, the federal prison system. And um, it was fascinating for, for me because it was an area that I had never had any experience with. And I did not want the job. <laughs> there had been a succession of, uh, I remember going to the office the first day and they, they, all of the former ministers were hung in effigy outside the, uh, the pictures were outside the office. It was the first office I'd gone into where there was security, where you had to go through a secure door uh, to go in and where a number of former ministers had, uh, had, you know, had their careers implode on them. Um, 
and I was the first one not to be a lawyer, not to have had any experience with the system. Um, so I was extremely apprehensive about that. And um, the first thing I knew I had to do was to get out and learn and see things for myself. The prison system was one example. Um, I'd always had the attitude, well, you have prisons so that I don't have to think about these things. Somebody breaks the law, send them away somewhere, and I, as a citizen, can go on with my life. I didn't have that luxury anymore. The people we were housing were going to get out sooner or later, and uh, they were either going to reoffend, somebody might be killed or, or injured or have their life savings stolen, um, or possibly we would be able to turn somebody around they could become productive citizens. I discovered in going around and, and visiting these institutions that we don't have the luxury of looking away. Uh, we have to be engaged with these toughest problems that we have. And the prison system, you would take somebody. Uh, somebody was probably a square peg in a round hole to begin with. May have, have family breakdown, uh, hadn't had a, an education, uh, was living in poverty, was having difficulty holding a job, may have been, uh, had a substance abuse problem, or alcohol problem, what have you, and he'd been sent to a federal prison for extended period, was suddenly thrown into a school for crime and forced into enforced uh, idleness during that, that time. Um, you then are let out, say, six years later, uh, with no skills, with all of the problems that you had when you came in, and with a criminal record and a few dollars in your pocket, and told, go forth and sin no more. Um, it, it, these were, you know, these are institutions. You know, this is a formula for having somebody reoffend. Um, and so the system, we, we do a great job of punishing. We do a good job of incarcerating and holding people out of society. We do a terrible job in terms of uh, in terms of rehabilitating people. But going through the the prison system was fascinating for me. We have very modern facilities, different levels of um, of uh, security, uh, and gothic facilities. Um, and some of the worst riots that we had were in the most modern facilities. You go. Why would it, why would it be there? And then some of the, the the facility that astonished me was when I visited Saskatoon, uh, a maximum security uh, prison, um, one that had a supermax inside it. So so literally, I watched trucks coming in to go to the kitchen. They were searched before they came onto the grounds. Then searched between the initial contact in the grounds and the time that they went into the supermax again. Uh, among the people that we had there was the person who had killed the warden at Laval. So these were dangerous people we were dealing with there. Uh, I had been to some of the most modern prisons where you walked around, you could cut the tension like an ice, like, 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 like butter. Uh, it, it, the whole atmosphere was icy and, and it could have exploded at any time. You had that sense. Notwithstanding the, the, the modernness of the facility, I walked around uh, Sask Penn with um, with the warden, his, uh, his name was Jimmy Sullivan. And uh, he had been there of long, long standing. Um, I'd never known anybody else who wanted to be warden of a prison for uh, a <laughs> <laughs> His explanation was, uh, 
explanation, his explanation to me, I don't know whether it was apocryphal or not, but he had been a labor leader, he said, in Regina and had led a general strike and be so leader to, uh, to uh, uh, Prince Albert and, and uh, uh, take over the prison. It was astonishing. When we, when we walked around that facility, there was no tension. None. I felt extremely comfortable there. And uh, when, uh, when he came through, he would say good morning to the inmates. And they would say good morning, morning and step aside as he came through. And uh, it was an incredible education for me that it's not, it's not the physical surroundings, it's the quality of leadership that you have that determines whether an institution succeeds or fails. I saw the same thing when I was defense minister, and I saw it was the quality of leadership we had in the armed forces that was so extraordinary, and how they how they treated people, how they were visionary, how they were empathetic. Um, that, to me, is the lesson from all of this. The single best manager of people whom I've ever met in my life was Brian Mulroney. Uh, I was privileged to... I hadn't supported him for the leadership. I had supported Joe Clark. Does, does he Brian. know this now? Because... <laughs> I had fully expected I would, I would be somewhere else behind the uh, My career was effectively over. Instead, what he did, after the leadership, he said a page has been turned, and he brought all of us who supported Joe in to be at the center of, uh, of, uh, of his cabinet. And he treated us with, with generosity. You can imagine the loyalty that it, that inspired in, in those of us who who had been opponents. Um, and then I would be home on Saturday night. My wife and I would be watching Saturday night at the movies, and the the phone would ring. And it was the Prime Minister of Canada on the end of the phone, and he would say, Perrin, it's Brian calling. Uh, Mila was telling me that she was watching TV in the house, and, and you gave a great speech this week. And, uh, <laughs> well, gosh, Thanks, Prime Prime Minister. Uh, you know, that's really great that you do that. But you, you realize it's Saturday night. There's something else that you could be doing rather than rather than calling me to uh, to spend your time with me. Uh, there he was on a Saturday night, calling me just to be supportive and and uh, and constructive. You talk to any member of that caucus, and um, they would tell you that that this that they would have crawled over broken glass for him because they felt that he had that empathy and he was always looking for um, how do we uh, how do we treat our caucus well? How do we treat them with respect? I knew that the prime minister was going to be in caucus every Wednesday as a cabinet minister. And I knew that I'd better have a pretty good explanation for why I wasn't there if the prime minister of Canada wasn't too busy to be there with my colleagues. And uh, I knew that if any of my colleagues was saying to the prime minister, um, the minister couldn't be bothered listening to me or didn't take my uh, didn't take my concerns seriously, that I would be hearing about this directly from the prime minister as well. This was a person who recognized that all of our success was going to come from how the team functioned. Um, then finally, just one last comment, bringing it back, Cavis, uh, to, to, to business again. I remember being at a lunch one day. I see this beside uh, Steve Ballmer from, uh, from Microsoft, the CEO of Microsoft. And I said to him, um, how do you spend your time as CEO of Microsoft? He said, 
I spent about 60% of it on HR. 60%. Not, um, I've, out trying to flog the product or to lobby Congress or to, uh, or, or to invent something new. It was, how do I build the team? And uh, that to me was a pretty interesting uh, lesson about, about leadership. It's about people. Do you think this is going to be a request for a repeat? Or... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I might as well corner you now, Perry, because um, if uh, we, this this is this is a this will be an amazing uh, this is an amazing podcast, and um, uh, you're, you're absolutely oh, awesome. Takes me dry. <laughs> <laughs> I, now, now that we made you sweat for the last uh, hour and some, um, hey, parent, if uh, would, would you ever come back and and, uh, and do this again with us sometime? I'd be glad to, but it'll have to be a much shorter. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I'm the luckiest person I know, and um, you know, I may not. I've said to people, I won't die rich in money, but I'll die rich in experience. And um, I've been so incredibly fortunate to be able to be engaged in, in jobs where I felt that felt that I was getting as much from the job and learning as much and having a chance to, to make a difference and having such incredible experiences over the course of this time working with, with people in Canada and internationally who are just at the very top of their field. And uh, what an incredible privilege this has been. Well, I, that, I mean, you, you've just, uh, you've been a wonderful encourager. Um, I've learned just so much over this, these last few minutes here. It's blown path, blown by. Um, and I think, I think our, our, you know, Canadian society has been blessed because of your approach to, to leadership and just the way that you just, did it <laughs> your your approach to uh to listening and and uh and making that that extra effort is something that's very motivating to me hearing this again and and uh, i gotta go up and buy some more empathy if they if they sell it in gallons i'll uh um <laughs> i i just um there there's so much there's so much more to learn so one of the key reasons why we started this uh this cast is we were had an opportunity to learn from people like 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 yourselves but, but uh, also be able to share it with others who uh, who, who want to learn and, and enjoy this regardless of where they're at in their career or their life. So uh, I really appreciate it. I thank you. And, and thank you very much for the service to the country, which includes all of us. And I think uh, much like we should always uh, salute our soldiers, uh, present and past that have protected and defended our right to our freedoms, uh, we we have to also serve the same honor to you who are in public service and provide and sort of defend the, the, the democracy that we live under. So thank you very much for that. Kavis and Colin, thank you. It's been a been a pleasure for me. Wonderful. And stay they only say stay <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Bald Leadership. If you enjoyed the show, Please follow, like, and share. See you next time.